We are in Revelation 19. We're in verses 11 through 21, and we've come to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So, turn in your, uh, you can look on in the outline or turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, and uh, you can follow along or you could just listen. Remember, this was originally read to the church, and we're going to get a description of who Jesus is and what Jesus uh, does, and uh, so you can also listen to it and just sort of let it uh, come at you because this is a, a somewhat intense passage. So listen carefully as this is the word of God. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. This morning, as we look at this vision of conquest and triumph, and the armies of the Lord, and the end of sin and death and everything evil, overwhelm us as you overwhelm John. Remind us of what this is all about. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is the Savior because he is the warrior king who comes in justice and righteousness. Help us to see a true picture of Jesus this morning. Do this for each of us. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of my favorite movie series and book series uh, is The Lord of the Rings. And it's clear that much of the imagery that J.R.R. Tolkien uh, employed uh, comes borrowed from the scriptures. And when I began studying today's passage, it begins with this verse. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And immediately I thought of the scene near the end of the two towers, the second Lord of the Rings film, where we witness the climactic battle for Helm's Deep. And under devastating and unrelenting assault, the fortress of Helm's Deep is in grave danger of falling. And the grotesque warriors of Suraman's army have breached the walls of the fortress and have commenced with the slaughter of all the people in their path. And the situation looks so hopeless that Aragorn and King uh, Theoden prepare what is surely a suicide mission until Aragorn notices the morning sunlight streams through the window and he remembers Gandalf's words, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And as the fifth day dawns, Aragorn and Theoden lead this suicide charge into the massed battalions of the enemy. And in the midst of the fight, with his last bit of remaining strength, Aragorn looks to the east and watches as the sun crests the hill to see Gandalf on his magnificent horse, Shadowfax. And Gandalf the Grey has reappeared in this resurrection story as Gandalf the White. And he rides high upon his huge white horse. And as the armies of evil turn to look at this new threat with smirks and laughter at what they perceive to be easy prey. But then Gandalf is soon surrounded by the massive cavalry of the riders of Rohan. And as the enemy prepares to defend his flanks, Gandalf and Shadowfax lead the riders down the hill in a devastating cavalry charge, shattering the lines of the enemy and utterly destroying them. The parallels to Scripture and particularly to today's passage, are clear. So let's turn to our text for today and the return of the king. The return of the king, verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, obviously, we're back in the book of Revelation today. And as we've gone through Revelation, you may have noticed there are basically two types of scenes. There are scenes on the earth. Most of them are brutal, talking about sin and death and judgment. And then there are scenes in heaven, which are glory and worship and joy and adoration and praise to God. And in each of these two scenes, there are three elements. One, there is a portrait of Jesus. And second, there is a response of either his people or his enemies, depending on who that chapter is focusing on. And then finally, there is a feast. Everything ends with a feast. Clearly, a Presbyterian book. 
Now, if any of you watched Gladiator or Braveheart or Gettysburg or Master and Commander, and you found those movies, as I did, to be deeply encouraging, you'll love this image of Jesus. You see, sometimes in our world, Jesus is portrayed as sort of this limp-wristed guy, you know, with lavender tights and nicely feathered hair, a daisy behind his ear, sipping, you know, decaffeinated organic tea. And as well, some of you have been told that Jesus is a pacifist. He would never hurt anyone. And it is true, we're now in a season where God is being gracious and patient and kind. He's inviting people to repent. He's inviting them to stop sinning. He's inviting them to trust in him. He's very patient. He's very loving. He's very kind. But there comes a day when he's done. There comes a day when he just takes sin and sinners and judges them. And then he makes a war against them. And what you're going to see here is a different picture of Jesus. Here Jesus comes with a tattoo, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the glorious truth is how you see Jesus determines everything else in your world. If you see Jesus as this mighty warrior king, you'll respect him, you'll follow him, you'll have a great deal of honor for him. If you see him as basically an extra in an exercise video, you know, you're not going to be able to worship him as God or give him the glory or be filled with excitement when you see him as you should. And in his vision, John's been in heaven from the beginning of the chapter, and now without warning, the scene shifts to earth. And there appears to be a magnificent figure astride a great steed. And this is depicted in a variety of ways uh, throughout the Bible, but always with the same purpose, to represent the final appearance of the Lord in history to execute judgment on the earth. <coughs> and before judgment is executed, we're presented with the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're presented with an image of him that forces us to consider his names, to consider his names. The first name we see here is in verse 11, faithful and true. Now, we already saw that name in Revelation 3, verse 14, where it reads, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Christ is faithful. He bore our transgressions in our place, the more you read the Bible, the more you'll see God's faithfulness. And as you live life, you'll have a list of ways that he's been faithful to you that will grow longer and longer and longer. And although friends and family will fail you, Jesus never will. He is more faithful a friend than you and I have ever been, and his faithfulness brings about greater confidence in him. Furthermore, Christ is true. Christians are concerned or should be concerned with matters of truth. Honesty should be our hallmark. We're to be careful with our words. So where are you looking for truth? Everyone's looking for truth. We're made, we're hardwired to seek truth. We're made to desire truth. And we all desire truth even if we deny it. People can deny truth all day long, but not a one of them lives like it. No one wants to get on an airplane with a postmodern pilot. 
You know, we surely want to believe the truth about airplanes and pilots before we have to buckle our seatbelts and return our seats and trays to the upright and locked position. And even the most postmodern professor believes in truth when it comes to the meaning of the words in his employment contract. And if, <laughs> and if Jesus is the truth, we need to get to know the truth, study the truth, order our lives in accordance with that truth. And thank God for his truth as it's reflected in our life and here in this church. And insofar as his truth is reflected in our daily life and in the words that we speak, it's only by his kindness and mercy and grace to us. He's the one who's causing his character to be reflected in us. You see, the Bible helps us to get to know ourselves better. So we're made in the image of God, but we're fallen through sin, which means that Christ is what we should be. Christ is faithful. We should be faithful. We demonstrate the character of God when we're faithful in our relationships, uh, our relationship with God and in our relationships with each other. It's Father's Day. Men, when you're faithful to your wife, you are demonstrating the character of God. That's the first name, faithful and true. Second, we're told about the unknown name, verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. This unknown name suggests what is always true, that there are things about the Lord Jesus Christ that no human being will ever fully grasp, this side of heaven. Third, verse 13, the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is a God who communicates, who speaks, who reveals. And that's because he's the word of God. We saw that all the way back at the beginning of John's gospel. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then later on in John 1, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ reveals the truth of God as the living word of God. No one else in the Bible has that name except Jesus. He seeks us by speaking to us and revealing himself to us. And the fourth name we read, verse 16, is that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you got to get this image, this picture in your head. Jesus Christ in glory, eyes blazing with fire, many crowns on his head, no longer a crown of thorns, his robe dipped in blood, no defensive armor whatsoever, sword coming out of his mouth, tattooed down his leg, king of kings, lord of lords, coming to judge the nations and make war. Christ rules, Christ reigns, he is king and lord of all. He's sovereign over all. If he's not sovereign over everything, he's not sovereign over anything. He's sovereign over Iraq, over Afghanistan, Washington, D.C., and the World Cup. It should help you sleep better tonight. It was certainly meant to give John some confidence. 
if you remember, he was suffering under exile, under the oppression of the Roman Empire, that he's powerless to resist. And here it's clear that even the Roman Empire, a domain that liked its kings and lords, is on the short leash of God the Almighty. And in their judgment, they come face to face with the King of kings and Lord of lords, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So not only are we to consider his names, but this image also forces us to contemplate his description. And the description is obviously symbolic, as is much in Revelation. You know, we have a hard time visualizing it even as we try These images of divine judgment are all taken from the Old Testament. Sword in the mouth, the iron scepter, the winepress of God's wrath. It seems apparent that John is summarizing all that has been written about Jesus Christ as history culminates in his judgment. There's a lot of meaning behind these descriptions. For starters, we need to understand that Christ is wise. He's all-knowing. Look at verse 12. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This description isn't new either. We were given this right from the start. Revelation 1, 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees everything, and his eyes burn away anything behind which truth might be hidden. His eyes burn away anything behind which truth might be hidden. It's an image that lets us know that nothing escapes Christ's knowledge. His eyes burn away all that hides what is faithful and true. And then we see that on his head are many diadems. The Greek word here is not the term for the victor's crown, but the diadem, the crown of sovereignty. This is the crown of a king. Christ will win this war as the universal sovereign over all the world. He wears a crown for every nation in the world. He has full authority to do what he pleases. And verse 13 tells us that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The blood on his garment is not his own. This is not the blood he shed for us on the cross, but the blood of his enemies. As we read in the Old Testament passage, this is based on Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes in crimson garments? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. And you have to get this. Jesus goes off to war wearing what? A robe. He's going off to war wearing cotton. Should tell you something about Jesus. He's not intimidated by us. He's not afraid of us. He's not threatened by us. He's not pushed around by us. If he decides he's going to crush us, it doesn't matter what we do. We can uh, arm ourselves. We can get bullets. We can get guns. We can get soldiers. We can get tanks. We can get weapons of mass destruction. And he comes in cotton. And he crushes us. Doesn't matter how great we make ourselves look. 
or how big we make ourselves look. Jesus simply shows up and he wins. And obviously we would think of the armies of heaven, that great host that follows the Lord into battle. Often we think of them as angels, but it seems clear from the context that this is the company of the saints. We read in Jude chapter 1, which is right before Revelation, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And how does he execute that judgment? We're shown, given this strange image in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This would have been an understandable image, if not a common image, to the first century church, to which John wrote, first of all, we know from Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But we also know this is a description of Jesus again right at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And the letter to the church in Pergamum, we read in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, there's a reason why boys love to watch sword fighting in the Lord of the Rings. Because they're image bearers of God. The reason why boys love to protect the innocent and undo the evildoers. It's because they're image bearers of God. It's very important, particularly for you men and for you boys, to see Jesus this way. In his three-year incarnation on the earth, the Lord Jesus was a humble, simple Galilean peasant. He was humiliated, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was stripped, he was beaten, and he bled to death on a Roman cross. He endured humiliation and suffering this side of heaven. But if that, however, is the only picture that you have of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, guys, that will greatly diminish your manhood. It will greatly diminish your confidence. It will greatly diminish your courage. You'll become a man who wilts and is humbled and humiliated in all the wrong ways. You need to see Jesus, particularly men and boys. You need to see Jesus in his victory, in his conquest, in his strength, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, in his second coming. Men, if your boys are going to grow up to be godly men, they need a model of toughness and courage and determination and righteousness. If our boys are going to grow up to be warrior men in the Lord's army, you need to begin now. They need to know this picture of Jesus as the divine warrior king. Yes, there will be times when they need to lay down their life just as Jesus did. There are times when we need to be humbled and we need to suffer because of our love for someone else. But there's also times when we must be strong and we must be confident and we must be courageous and we see that in Jesus. 
Both of these portraits of Christ are true. Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. But if you saw Jesus today, which portrait would you see? You would see him wearing a robe dipped in blood. You would see him with crowns on his head. You would see him riding a white horse. You would see him in unveiled glory, triumphant and true, and you would see him with a sword coming out of his mouth to declare war on his enemies. That's what you would see today. And if you can get that picture in your head, then you'll understand the rest of this passage. But you need to get that picture in your head to live your life, to be men, to raise our boys to be men. We've lost that. I was reading in the paper the other day, they said 25 is the new 18. I think that's horrible. After the greatest generation fought World War II, the average 24 or 25-year-old guy was working a full-time job married, owned a home, had two kids. The average 24-year-old guy today has none of those things. That has to change. It has to start here in the church. We need men. You look around at our church, you can look at any church. See huge numbers of boys being born. I think it's for a reason. All that will help us understand the conquest of the king, starting at verse 17. The conquest of the king. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, that's a lovely Sunday school picture. (laughs) This grim picture is taken actually from Ezekiel's prophecy of the destruction of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 39. And Rich is teaching on Ezekiel. Where are you? 34. 39 is coming. There it says, As for you, son of man... Thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. We're going to come back to that once in chapter 20, these images of the defeat of Gog and Magog and Ezekiel. But here, the language, much of it is pulled directly out into Revelation 
<clears throat> and I think this Feast of the Birds, as gross and grotesque as it is, is given to us as a sharp contrast with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we saw last week. There's going to be two feasts. One you get to eat, the other you get to be eaten. You choose. I, I vote for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? And if you think of this image, the followers of Jesus are behind him. The enemies of Jesus are in front of him. Which side of Jesus are you on? It's a very clear, direct contrast. It's very deliberate on the part of the Apostle John. There's two feasts, one in heaven and one on earth. Choose wisely. This scene is one of many, and clearly it's not just your choice, but this scene is one of many that talks about the ultimate destruction of the enemies of God. The enemy army is led by the beast, the false prophet. They were introduced back in chapter 13. And they're thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Our older translations say fire and brimstone. That's where that phrase comes from. It's a horrifying image of hell. And their army is destroyed by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse. There's no actual description of the last battle as much as I would like that. These are images, not literal descriptions. And in any case, the entire event proves to be anticlimactic. The nations rise up, but the battle's nothing to speak of. The enemies of the Lord are routed. Their leaders captured and judged. God speaks with the sword of his mouth. Judgment is pronounced and immediately implemented. Jesus simply wins. And the second coming makes people serious precisely because it is the day of judgment. And those who aren't prepared for it suffer eternal loss. This is the dismal, terrifying message of the last paragraph in this chapter as it is the message of this whole book. Revelation, more than any other book, is about the wrath and judgment of God and particularly as that wrath and judgment will be visited upon the world at the end of the age. That word for wrath <coughs> and anger of God as we see here, it's been used 13 times in the last 14 chapters. We've already spoken about God's wrath a number of times as we work our way through the book, and John's not finished with the subject. And when you think about the future, as John is thinking about the future from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you cannot help but think about God's wrath. It is there waiting for us at the end. The moral nature of the universe is rooted in God's own character, which means that no one else feels its violation as much as he does. No one measures the wrong of human life, man's indifference to God and our injustice to our neighbors. No one measures that as much as God does. I mean, think about it. You know, those of you that are parents, you know how deeply you feel the misbehavior of your children. Because they're yours. When they rebel against you, when you're embarrassed by their behavior, it angers you, it offends you, it troubles you, precisely because they're yours. 
You're identified with them. You have great interest in them. You love them. You care for them. You want them to be good. You want to be proud of them. You gave them life. And when they abuse that gift, when they make their life something that's unworthy, you keenly feel that unworthiness. Well, how much more with God who gives life to everyone? You know, there's something deeply wrong with the world. Most people think the world is relatively normal. It's not. It's abnormal. It's broken. It's not what it ought to be. And this is a matter of great sadness and offense to the God who made this world and who made it to be something better than it is. Like it or not, we live in a fallen world. And you know... I've always wondered, I, I mean, I love Jesus. I appreciate that he suffered, died, and rose again. I'm glad that he shed his blood so I don't have to shed mine. But what good is that if he's not victorious? What good is if, if he can't deal with Satan? What good is if he, if he can't conquer sin and death? What good is he if he's actually not in charge of all creation? What good is he? He's nice, he's humble, he's kind, he's great, he's winsome, he's a great teacher. I appreciate that. But what we need is a king. That's what we need. We don't need someone to simply inspire us to do good things by saying nice words. We need someone who does great things to lead us into that place. I came across a great story back in the 4th century. The last non-Christian emperor of Rome was Julian the Apostate. He decided to expand the Roman Empire by marching on Persia. And during the march, some of his soldiers got a hold of a Christian man, a real man, and they tortured him and tormented him for sport. And when they got tired of it, they looked this hapless, helpless victim in the eyes. And with scorn in their voices, they said, where now is your carpenter God? And this Christian man, prisoner of Rome, looked up through the blood and the pain and the agony. And he said, where now is my carpenter God? He's building a coffin for your emperor. I love that. And Julian the Apostate died in a losing battle in Persia in 363 AD. We have this picture of Jesus as the divine warrior king, Lord over all. That's a God you can worship. That's a God you can trust. That's a God you can stick with. You should want to worship a warrior. Listen to this great old commentator. I, I didn't find this. John MacArthur didn't. I got it out of his book. It's a great old commentator. Book's unavailable today uh, by the name of Swiss. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. But he wrote these words. I got to share them with you. He wrote this about this text. He said, this tells an awful story. It tells of the greatest of man-made food for vultures, of kings and leaders, strong and confident, devoured in the field with no one to bury them of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king rendered helpless, even against timid birds. The great conqueror comes down, he rides on the bright horse and flies upon the wings of the wind. Smoke goes up from his nostrils and devouring fire out of his mouth. He moves amid storms and darkness from which the lightning howls its bolts and hailstones mingled with the fire. 
He roars out of Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem till the heavens and the earth shake. He dashes forth in the fury of his own incensed greatness amid clouds of fire and smoke. The sun frowns, the mountains melt and split at his presence. The hills bound from their place and skip like lambs. The waters are dislodged from their channels. The sea rolls back with howling fear. The sky is rent and folds upon itself like a collapsed tent. It is the day for executing an armed world, a world in covenant with hell to overthrow the authority and throne of God and everything in terrified nature joins to signal the deserved vengeance. That's awesome. And so what we see here in Revelation 19 is that Jesus is braver than Braveheart, more powerful than any gladiator in the movie Gladiator. His roar is more frightening than Aslan's, and this battle is bigger than Helm's Deep. Jesus is not a pacifist or a pussycat. Rather, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. God doesn't stutter. Jesus isn't gentle. He's the general who conquers his enemies and sin as a declaration of war against him. He will deal with it. He's not a wimp. He's a warrior. He's mighty in battle. And he wins not with tanks or machine guns or grenades or ships or submarines or torpedoes. He just comes in cotton. And he wins simply by speaking The sharp sword that comes out of his mouth is the word of judgment that comes upon those who don't repent of their wickedness in this life and made light of his cross in which he suffered in our place for sin. As Mark Driscoll would say, this isn't the Jesus portrayed on Oprah. He doesn't need a therapist. He's not on meds. He doesn't need any help here. What good is Jesus if he's a counselor but not a king? Jesus is the king. He is the divine warrior king. And you should rejoice in that. Why? Why should you rejoice in Jesus being the warrior king? Because think about it. Nobody is going to rape or molest your kids in heaven. Nobody's going to rip you off or steal from you. Nobody's going to tease you and mock you as Christians. Nobody's going to lie to your face and betray you and scam you. Nobody's going to slander you and bring your name into the mud. You won't need a dog or an alarm system or even a lock. Nobody's going to break your windows on your car to steal something out of it. Nobody gets kidnapped. Nobody gets murdered. Nobody gets used. Nobody gets stolen to be a sex slave. Nobody gets exploited for personal gain. Nobody gets oppressed. No Holocaust, no child porn, no child prostitution, no terrorist bombings, no genocidal governments. There is no more curse and there is no more sin. That's why Jesus is worthy of worship. He really fixes all the problems. He really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will vanquish all evil. And the last sounds of this world are not going to be screams of anger and fear or cries of pain or moans of despair. The last sounds are going to be songs of praise and rejoicing. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Remember that. Rejoice in that. 
You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. For those of us who need a new understanding of the awesome power of God, for those of us who need a divine picture of justice and righteousness, for those of us who need to see victory and triumph as our blessed hope, Help us to focus on Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who love you, who trust you, and who will follow you into battle. In the name of the King, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, faithful and true, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.